Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is Dr. Heather Brunskill Evans, a Foucauldian scholar who teaches and researches the relationship between modern medicine, sex, and gender. Her latest book is Transgender Body Politics by Spinifix Press. Welcome to Savage Minds. Heather, how did you come to approach transgender body politics from the larger political and philosophical landscape? Julian, I'm very pleased you've asked me that question because in the past few days I've done a number of interviews about the book and people always ask what motivated you to, to write it and it's very difficult to, to talk about what motivated me to write it outside of the larger context of political philosophy and of course most people aren't actually interested in the larger context of political philosophy when they when they're questioning me about transgenderism so you've given me an opportunity to actually go to the source in many ways the source of how i got captivated by the issue of transgenderism and what i regard as a real threat to um, liberal democracy as well as to the rights of women and children who of course make up um, a large part of liberal democracy so it, it, it thank you for giving me this opportunity so if i just return at the moment to some of the principles of of liberalism that that i think are are threatened at the moment um, so if we think of liberalism as being made up of a, a few um, issues, I'll just enumerate them if that's okay. So mm -hmm. we think of uh, uh, political democracy, um, limitations on the power of government, mm -hmm. universal human rights, legal equality for all citizens, freedom of expression, um, respect for the viewpoints of others and the diversity of different viewpoints and honest debate. Where, where actually engaging in debate and hearing the other point of view is a fundamental cornerstone of living in a liberal democracy. Uh, respect for evidence and reason, and of course the separation of the church and the state, hmm. and freedom of religion. So when we hold dear these um, principles uh, people often think of them as being practical things but they're being practical aspects of liberal democracy but all of the of the of the bullet points that i've just enumerated are heavily dependent on as ideas which we forget about our liberal democracy liberal democracy is based on a shift in how we think from other political regimes and the shift was created or be began let's say in the 18th century further developed in the 19th century and keeps on evolving actually but if i i think i may return to john stuart mill if that's okay um, i hope this isn't getting too philosophical um, for this podcast um, but please tell me whether it is no, this is quite interesting because we're seeing a lot of these, uh, ironically, I don't have a lot of time to read everything or listen to all the podcasts out there. But when I do, it's fascinating that I'm finding people who are saying exactly things I've been talking about as well, right? And uh, Mill is one of those people who's been um, 
exponentiated upon recently, um, yeah. as well as a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers, because we're at a crisis of, of democratic debate, of, yeah. of representation, and yeah. how we choose to interact within the public square. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, often people call upon uh, John Stuart Mill in order to valorize the role of the individual um, in liberal democracy in relation to previous regimes which were autocratic. So, you know, that could be theocracy, patriarchy, fascism and so on. So liberal democracy is held up as a counter to those, to those political regimes and the emphasis is on are valuing in liberal democracy of the individual. But of course, John Stuart Mill's approach to how to think about resisting previous regimes of power isn't just based on the individual. So I'd like to go back to his two of his central principles. And I'm just going to read them out, actually. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about, um, it's not the, in uh, his little book on liberty, which is a tiny little book, but fascinating to read. He talks about liberty, not in relation to the individual will. Mill isn't concerned about the liberty of the will. What he's concerned about is civil and social liberty. Uh, that is the nature and limits of the power which can be legitimately exercised by society over the individual. So he, he makes very clear that there is a conundrum and the conundrum is how can individuals be most free when society needs to impose a certain level of social control and social order. And he relates that to various questions such as what is the rightful limit to the sovereignty of the, of the individual over himself or herself, as we would describe it now? Where does the authority of society begin? How much of human life should be assigned to individuality and how much just to society? I, I think I want to return to those issues that seem to me crucial to be thinking uh, when we think about individual liberty we always have to think about individual liberty in relation to society as a whole we are not free as individuals to identify in whichever way we want or to act in whichever way we want our our personal identities our actions must always be uh, regulated in relation to the larger society given that we hope to maximize as much individual freedom as possible. Now, I, I, I talk about these things because I think they're very important to the kind of critique of, that, of Foucault, <laughs> which is um, happening at the moment, because I think you know that Foucault is one of the theorists who has been very influential on my life and my thinking uh, and indeed my analysis of transgenderism, um, what Foucault does, uh, contrary to the way that he's characterized and um, in a way um, reductively assigned to some silly place of 
of um, being um, you know, rejecting the idea that the individual is placed in society. Actually, he, what he does is he very much places himself with the kind of dilemma that John Stuart Mill is talking about and proceeds to analyze the relationship between the individual and society and how we can think about that. When does society transgress? How does it transgress? What are the limits of our freedom? Where is the power of society exercised? Is it through the law? Is it through um, other means? And for Foucault, it's through the body. So um, let me not go too far down that before I've unpacked some of that, those ideas. Well, let me ask you if I could. Yes, please. Yes. For those listening, um, Foucault is either a name they've read and have not read about very much, or they might have read Foucault. Uh, Discipline and Punish seems to be one of the most accessible of his texts that has been taught um, in undergraduate, graduate courses. And I, I've been, you know, you and I have spoken about this. We had a, you know, a discussion we published a couple of years ago where we talked about Foucault and a lot of the, what I would call mishandling uh, and even misreading of his, of his theories. And one thing that strikes me is his work in Discipline, discipline and Punish, uh, not just his use of the metaphorical, you know, co-optation of Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, which quickly to surmise is this cursorial structure where it's a circular prison in the middle of which is a parapet, a tower from which guards can see all prisoners in the outer circle. And his theory of power, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is basically that little does it matter if the guard is even present in the tower the prisoners will behave as if they are always being surveyed. And he applies this, replicating it in an almost a geometric pattern, you know, throughout society such that everyone is, is conterminously in the tower and the prisoner, that we are always conscious of watching and being watched. This is his theory of power, that power is not unidirectional for Foucault, which puts a monkey wrench in some Marxist arguments that power is only top down. Foucault sort of says, well, there's a power structure that's much more complex than this. It's not a one-way street. Not to say that oppression doesn't exist, but he examines, for instance, in the handling of the plague and how Paris itself was broken up into, into certain sectors of where the plague was more contained and more uh, surveyed the way that bodies are of, of let's say educational um, schools the military schooling were organized and then later on in his you know trilogy of history of sexuality how sexuality was also maintained and surveyed uh, all of these various books of his they have one stream in common which is about how power is exercised onto the self. And so I found it really interesting when I would read, uh, years ago, Ariel ran an essay by Helen Pluckrose, which has now grown into the book, this is my theory, it became her book from uh, James Lindsay and herself co-authored on um, basically an assault on 
everything that's wrong with identity politics, much of which I agree, but their critique and her critique of postmodernism is something I find um, hodgepodge and not really well thought out when it comes to Foucault, because they're, they're calling Foucault a postmodernist, for one, which he is not. He's definitely a poststructuralist. And they are also saying that everything about identity politics is rooted in his theories, which in fact, if you read Foucault, it's the exact opposite of this. And I'm wondering now in what you've been talking about uh, with John Stuart Mill and this idea of how the subject understands herself politically within greater society, how on earth has it been possible for people to read the exact opposite of what Foucault actually stated? He was very much against this kind of modeling and labeling of the mental hospital patient. He was against the judicial process of having someone declared insane, right? So how is it that we've come to 2020, you know, 2020, and we're looking at a body of critique against one of the, pro the most important philosophers of the 20th century that are based on a misreading of his work, effectively? Well, I think the problem is, and I hope to get back to this, that Foucault is conflated with or seen to be the author of queer theory. That's one of the reasons why he's getting a good bashing at the moment. And I'm very crit critical of queer theory. And I don't, and, and Foucault clearly um, wasn't a queer theorist, never described himself as such. Other people have taken his work and um, given him the label of being a queer theorist. If I could, I hope, I do hope that, that we can get to, to that point. But if I just go back, um, uh, Julian, you, you brought up the really central issue that Foucault talks about. He talks about how power uh, works through self-surveillance. And in doing so, he is critiquing Mar a Marxist model of power. Now, to say that is not to say that Foucault is against Marx in any way. He didn't reject Marx. He, he pointed out that where, where Marx is concerned to, to talk about the way that all of our consciences, as it were, a consciousness, um, it, uh, we think of our, ourselves as being agents of our lives, but actually our consciousness is shaped by the economic conditions in which we live. Um, Foucault agreed with that, but said that power um, worked uh, through that mechanism, but also through other mechanisms, which is uh, the self-surveillance that you're talking about. But if we place, if we talk about his analysis of the prison, what he's really talking about is the shift. For example, he's using that as a metaphor. This is a shift from one political regime to another. So what he's warning us about is the issue that John uh, Stuart Mill was talking about was um, the limits of, of um, uh, individual sovereignty and how society controls uh, the individual. So Foucault is talking about a regime in which a prisoner previously might have been um, hung, drawn and quartered, for example, that we had brutal regimes of punishing prisoners. 
Now, Foucault isn't saying that. Um, he's pointing out the significance of the difference in the way that we punish people. He's connecting that up to the different regimes of power. He's not saying, as Pluckrose is saying, I think, um, in her article, which is called How French Intellectuals Have Ruined the West, I think she calls it. And she's talking, she's, she mentions Foucault very much in that, and she calls him a relativist. He's not a relativist. He's not saying that the regime of punishing prisoners brutally and the regime of punishing prisoners through putting them under a surveillance in, in prisons um, are, are um, just different from one another and one is as good as the other. He's not, Foucault's clearly not saying that. All he's doing is pointing out the differences in the regimes and the ways that in the modern period we might think of ourselves as being very humane now. We don't do those awful things to people anymore. What we do is we, we separate them off from society. We ask them to reflect upon themselves. We ask them to feel guilty about their behavior and so on. So Foucault is just pointing out that we need to reflect that some of the ways in which we uh, laud ourselves for being much more humane might actually bring with them other forms of inhumane practices which if we don't understand the ideas that have gone behind them, we may mistakenly imagine are about freedom when in fact what we see as freedom now might be caught up with other regimes of power which are more subtle and more complex. And all he is doing is asking us to reflect. He's not, he's not saying that nothing matters. In the contrary, he's saying that everything matters. And because everything matters, it's incumbent upon us to think through how we become the people that we are now in modernity. What we then do with that, whether we want to become queer theorists or whatever we want to do with it, is actually not his responsibility. And he never claims to know what we should do with it. He gives us tools with which to think. And in that sense, I think that Foucault is one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century because he dares to say, I don't have the answers. And he dares to say, we collectively, not individually, he never asks us to individually provide answers, that we collectively need to um, unpick ideas because ideas, even for Mill, the liberalism that Pluckrose wants to lord, liberalism itself is based on a whole set of ideas. And he, Foucault asks us to think about ideas and unpick them. I mean, it's amazing. He's amazing in that. Well, you know, in all my readings of Foucault, the one thing I never came away with was that he was advocating for the subject to go back to the institution to be rubber stamped. And what we're seeing today in our society is a hyper individualist uh, social thread of people 
not only rubber stamping themselves, but insisting that we mirror their identities. I often say you'll see social media threads of mine where I say, I am not your mirror. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing quite purposefully Nan Golden's book of photography, where um, she collects images of a lot of drag queens from the late 70s through the 1980s. And her use of I am your mirror, that's the title of the series, is, is ironic in its deconstruction of men masquerading as women. And it's also dealing with a certain kind of repressed um, social culture during the height of America's conservatism with Jesse Helms trying to outlaw Cindy Sherman, Robert Mapplethorpe, Andrea Serrano, Piss Christ, remember that. And we had the moral majority in the 1980s from the right vehemently slashing all forms of artistic production such that it has had a long-lasting effect on how the National Endowment for the Arts in the United States has functioned. Mm -hmm. To today, the most ironic and tragic part of this is that the new moral majority, the new religion is from the left and it is identitarianism in every way. And they are claiming wrongfully that it's Foucault, like Pluckrose, I'll read you two sentences from her essay. Um, it's the one that you referred to earlier, um, how French intellectuals ruined the West. And, and she says, we see in Foucault the most extreme expression of cultural relativism read through structures of power in which shared humanity and individuality are almost entirely absent. Instead, people are constructed by their position in relation to dominant cultural ideas, either as oppressors or oppressed. Um, not at all what he said, actually. Then she says, Judith Butler drew on Foucault for her foundational role in queer theory, focusing on the culturally constructed nature of gender. She goes on to cite Said and Crenshaw, but I won't go there. Now let's look at what Butler actually does with Foucault because she leans on Foucault mostly from his work on Herculine Barbin, which is uh, his text on what is called in, you know, at the time of this hermaphroditic figure. And Butler writes, the notion that there might be a truth of sex, as Foucault ironically terms it, is produced precisely through the regulatory practices that generate coherent identities through the matrix of coherent gender norms. The heterosexualization of desire requires and institutes the production of discrete and asymmetrical oppositions between feminine and masculine, where these are understood as expressive attributes of male and female. I'm going to stop there. Butler is very dense. But what's interesting here, and this is where I think today's reading of queer theory is completely divorced from what Butler herself wrote. She's talking about gender in terms of what we knew it to be in the 80s and 90s. Gender meant feminine and masculine. It didn't even mean man or woman. It meant attributes of a cultural and social performance, feminine and masculine, as related to the somatic interfaces or the body of male and female. She was relying on Foucault's notion of the truth of sex as he examined Herculine Barbin in that text itself. And I'm thinking people denigrate Foucault 
and they tried to assume that everything that Butler wrote was on the basis of his entire body of work or some kernel that he set out to assault feminist theory, which is non-existent, he didn't. Um, it's become this myth that's been spread by such readings like this of Pluckrose, where she says people are constructed by their position in relation to dominant cultural cultural ideas, either as oppressors or oppressed. That's the exact opposite of what Foucault wrote. And he was looking at how people can be both oppressors and oppressed, for instance, and how the being in the tower of the panopticon or being the one who's looked upon represents all of us simultaneously. This notion of the heterosexual subject is something that Butler's work seeks to produce from this text. She's looking at the way the heterosexual subject was historically the norm. These notions of what gender meant in the 1950s and 70s is very different than the way that queer theorists or people who claim to be queer theorists are claiming gender is today. Gender today represents nothing of the time that Butler wrote Gender Trouble. Today gender is this idea of an internal sense of identity that either matches or does not match a body, which is paradoxically anathema to what Butler herself wrote back when she penned Gender Trouble. She was not talking about being in the wrong body. She was not writing about an internal identity that had to be let go, almost exercised as if in a medieval you know, priest coming to one's home to exercise the subject of the, the diabolical forces from within. She was basically speaking about this incongruency between social and political and medical readings of the body in disconnect to the cultural language at the time. How in the heck have we come to understand queer theory? Even Butler now in her latest interviews seems to not understand what she herself had written and it, she's recasting her own work. I, I agree completely with you. And what she writes now is, is, um, is quite frankly quite upsetting because what she does in just upsetting at, at the level of thinking of her as an as an intellectual i mean her previous work was arcane and, and and difficult to read i have to say i have i have read it all um um what she does now is she actually talks like a, a sort of trans activist on the street you know every other word is you're a transphobe if you don't agree with what i'm saying and it's really sad that, that she has descended to that level of analysis. But um, if we go back to what she originally uh, wrote in Gender Trouble and the analysis that you've made of it, um, I agree with your analysis, but I think she set the scene for what identity politics has become or the critique of the heteronormative has become. Um, because she does take Foucault but what she, she makes a, a, a crucial shift. And it's this crucial shift that we need to go back to. Mm -hmm. So Foucault himself critiques the heteronormative. That is why his theories um, are, are powerful and powerful for women, actually, for uh, a feminist analysis. Um, because he, but what he does is he doesn't reject the body 
Foucault brings the body right into central status in his analyses. That's so, right. so, we, so what queer theory has become is a rejection of the body, and Foucault is blamed for this, which is, has a terrible irony to it, because Foucault talks about the body all the time. In fact, one of the complaints you could make about it is that he talks about the body ad nauseum. So what he does is, and why I think one can have a feminist analysis of, of Foucault, is that he actually talks about sexed bodies, the reality of dimorphic bodies. He doesn't reject that at all. He talks about the way that men and women in their physical bodies are caught up in relations of power which fix on to the body. So Absolutely. for example, in the 19th century, um, medicine, the law, uh, and so on, had a good job at policing women, for example, on the basis that their bodies led them to alleged hysteria which meant that you know, terrible things were perpetrated on women on the basis that they had unstable bodies. You know, even a, a young girl or a young teenager who was sexually abused might herself be put incarcerated for life on the basis that in some sense, her body, her, her pathologized femininity had caused the man to behave in the way that he had. Um, so Foucault is wonderful, actually, at, at a historical analysis of how sexed bodies were taken up by the authorities, by discourses like medicine and, and, and the law, and policed through them. And that what actually happened, and the wonders of the wonderful thing about his analysis is that we end up believing as human beings, as individuals, that we have a deep sexuality. Um, and by sexuality, he wasn't talking about sexual desire, actually. He was almost talking about gender, that we, but gender hadn't been invented at that time. So when he talks about sexuality, he's talking about the relationship between the social construction of how we understand our sexed bodies. And he was asking us to, to unpack all of those things, not to throw away the body, but to, but to understand the way that as human beings, we're biological um, beings, as well as intellect, uh, cognitive beings and social beings. And how, how does this materiality get shaped by liberal democratic societies in order that we think that we are free. So liberal democracies work, function on the basis that we imagine ourselves to be free. And if we imagine ourselves to be free, we can lose track of the ways in which we're not free. So Foucault is asking us to, women and men, to look at the ways in which we can perceive ourselves as having a very strong identity and it's around gender and sexuality might be the very ways in which we're most policed in the, the very moment in which we think of ourselves as being most free might just be the very time that we are most policed. Which brings me to why I can use Foucault as an analysis of 
the policing of transgenderism, not to prove that gender identity is innate, but to actually demonstrate with evidence that it's not, that it's a socially constructed phenomenon which trans activists and trans ideology would have consistently argued for the past number of years that it's innate. That is so, uh, that's an anathema. It's the complete contradiction to anything that Foucault said. So it is bizarre. It is absolutely bizarre. And one of the things that Placro says, and I think she's right, is that, that in order to understand the social conditions of our own existence now in the 21st century and the ridiculous social justice uh, warrior movements that, that have become so irrational, and I completely agree with her, I have, um, and they're almost a mirror image of, of the far right reactionary movements. They're both claiming the same thing, that they are the true interpreters of, of liberal democracy and that we ought to get back to that. Um, what, what, uh, we ought to get back to liberal democracy, but it's always as they analyze it. Um, so what Pluckrose is asking is that we look at theory, we unpack it. She sets Foucault up in opposition to that when he's on our side. If Pluckrose, yourself, myself, are, are as one in the sense that we want to unpack theory to understand how these authoritarian movements are taking hold and actually threaten the liberal democracy that we have worked for on the principles of liberal democracy, Foucault is with us, he is not against us. So the fact that other people use Foucault's theory, he cannot be held responsible for that. And you cannot critique Foucault without, you can't give him responsibility without taking the time and effort to actually understand him. Now, the problem with this is nobody wants to take time and effort intellectually anymore, I don't think. We're living in an, an, uh, an anti-intellectual era, which is why these authoritarian movements can get a hold. No longer are we asked to provide some sort of evidence, and that can be theoretical analysis, for why we take the positions that we have. We've now bastardized what Foucault said, turned it round and said that whatever we feel, if we, it, it, heteronormativity is now the baddie. And if in some sense we are placed outside of that heteronormativity, we are therefore essentially a goodie. So um, it's become so simplified. So anybody who feels that they are excluded by heteronormative discourses automatically takes up the position of being the valiant warrior on the side of social good who wants to you know who can overturn everything else everybody else and all social structures and will eventually arrive at nirvana where these people will rule and everybody will be free to be exactly who they are this is such a misreading of Foucault as to beg a belief, uh, to beg a belief. Yeah, I can't say much more than that, really. Well, my worry is that, and I've had this discussion with other people on the left, where Foucault is now being trashed as also, you know, I'm sure you've read uh, those who claim he is approved of pedophilia, he has advocated for pedophilia, this was a huge misreading of a very 
widespread French movement on the left in the 1970s, there were two things going on in France. Um, one was to fight for the rights of prisoners and, um, and to lower the age of consent. Now, alongside Foucault were other people. And uh, this was uh, Simone Signoret, uh, Yves Montan, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, we can't negate the fact that there were women involved in the same fight, including one of the most important feminists of the 20th century. I mean, we cannot just negate the fact that Simone de Beauvoir was also part of the same movement of Foucault. And yet Foucault has been thrown to the lions. Um, again, the claims that he has uh, written approvingly of rape. Can you speak to this? I can speak to it. Um, please remind, remind me to bring the rape issue back in. I'm going to deal with the child, the adult child sex um, issue first. So, um, and by using the term adult child sex rather than paedophilia, um, I, I suppose I'm doing that deliberately. I, if, I, I, I hate the term paedophilia because of course it means the love of children. Um, so, Foucault made an argument that adult child sex was not the abuse of the child or not necessarily the abuse of the child. I agree that he does it. I don't want to escape his moral culpability for that. I, what my argument is, his mode of analysis, the tools that he give us, gives us, which by the way are called archaeology and genealogy, just methods of tracing back the basis of our knowledge and politics. Um, I don't think that, that his analyses lead to this position. He was clearly um, a man of his time. And uh, when he writes uh, theoretically, he can't possibly justify that it's, that it's perfectly okay to, for children to have sex with adults and that somehow we can remove adult child sex from power because his whole oeuvre is about uh, power operating everywhere and power operating through and on hierarchies and on the body. So he is very un-Foucauldian when he, he, he um, participates in these discussions. Uh, for anybody who's interested, don't want to be a pedant here, but there is one little uh, extract from History of Sexuality, Volume 1, which is a fascinating little book about sexuality, where he does claim, it's called The Lapcore Incident, Mm -hmm. um, and as interestingly, I, 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 I did a PhD um, using the LAPCOR incident as the, this sort of axis around which I made a comparison between Foucauldian theory and, and radical feminist theory and how, how, this, how he had a different interpretation of, 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 of a, a little incident that happened between an adult and a child and um, how radical feminists, including myself, would make sense of that incident. But anyway, he, he kind of lapsed, I think, in that when he talked about that, because he says that that incident was innocent. 
So it happened between a peasant, he talks about this incident as happening between a peasant who couldn't, um, could only gain what Foucault calls caresses from a girl because no adult woman would have him. And he describes the very sort of, um, he describes the little girl as being culpable that she's forward, as it were, almost as if she was a sexual person in her own, a developed sexual person in her own right, and that she got paid for, for doing it. So it's a dreadful passage in the history of sexuality. I define anybody to find any, uh, anywhere else in Foucault's theoretical work where he talks about sex in that way uh, between adults and children. But he does in his dialogues, which were, there were a number of them, which are published in English, um, with people who do advocate for adult child sex being possibly consensual. Nobody's arguing that, that, that children should um, be there as sexual objects for men. Let's face it, it's largely men. Um, uh, but they are saying that children can consent to having sex with men. In fact, that their sexuality might lead them to want to have sex with men. Now, this is an argument which was, um, a proposition, I mean, which was going around at the time and in this country. It was it, the, the Harriet Harman actually and, and other people from the Labour government were going along with this argument, just as the Labour government now is going along with the idea that children can consent to, at the age of 10, um, just to become sterile through medical intervention. Right. It's, so so this, it absolutely needs to be unpacked. Um, it does arise, and I'm not escaping from this, it does arrive from a, something that Foucault had partially initiated, other theorists were doing it, with a critique of, of the norms that, that, that adhere around um, heterosexuality. So what actually happened was, um, since he critiqued those norms, um, anything that fell outside of that, all the forbidden areas that fell outside of it, so, you know, same-sex um, relationships, sexual relationships between adults and children, um, be queer sex um, is also um, obviously um, good because it's 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 resisting heteronormativity. This is this is where children come into it, and this idea that if adult child sex is frowned upon or not not accepted as um, so not socially acceptable, this must be because because power is being exercised upon children rather than that there may actually be good reasons why we protect children from adult child sex having sex with adults sorry and that the good reasons might be based on biology psychological stages of development and emotional stages of development the actual power that adults exercise over children and quite rightly in some senses exercise over children because children need to be safeguarded and protected until they're an adult. So we've thrown out lots of issues in terms of child protection with this idea that we're actually freeing them. Foucault was wrong in that. He was unfoucauldian in that. And that 
those discourses that were prevalent in the 1970s, which quite, you know, conventional people, as I say, in a sense, took up um, because the paedophile information exchange, which was prevalent in the 1970s and in this country, um, was, was almost given a free pass sometimes in our, in our media. So, and, and lots of figures now, I don't want to name them because I don't want to a lawsuit at the moment. I'm, I'm pretty um, pressed with um, uh, various other things in relation to the Tavistock, yeah. but um, would now want to dis disavow that. And I think Dr. M, um, as she is, is known, um, uh, writes, uh, quite rightly wants to go back to that history and name people because they want to slink off and disavow that they ever had any part in that. They did have a part in it. We need to bring it out into the open and expose it. And I'm absolutely not averse to bringing Foucault into that, but not Foucault's theoretical work. And it's his theoretical work, which is really powerful for an analysis of transgenderism. And it's his theoretical work that Butler bangs on about all the time. And so we need to go to that and distinguish between what he says and what Butler says he says. Let's have a proper discussion about it. Well, there's also a will that, and this speaks to our current era of cancel culture, uh, purging uh, harassment to outright pulling of pieces from uh, publications, hounding editors such that now we're living in an age where it's not cancel. I mean, cancel culture is such a silly word in a way because we're living in a, a wider sphere of uh, if someone runs a piece, you know, that magazine or that editor or writer will face any number of repercussions to include just, you know, auto censorship. And that's what's happening. We're getting a lot of censorship um, that's happening even before the pieces run so you know editors are saying no to pitches because they know what's going to happen to them i've had it happen but what i find interesting is you know um feminists many not all have reacted to foucault's work um i find sometimes without having read him they've read they said well i heard you know such and such a person speak about foucault and i said well have you read foucault no but then I go back to like someone like Anne Cahill, who suggested that Foucault was guilty of basically seeking to define rape as solely a violent crime. Now, this is interesting because Germaine Greer last year spoke about this. And she said, I'm paraphrasing here, but she spoke about how women need to accept that rape happens and that maybe two things, that we don't have a way of dealing with it through jurisprudence in a way that we'll see every single rapist convicted. So she asks women, what can we do next then? What can we do to assure ourselves that crimes such as rape and sexual assault might be handled with the full knowledge that we can't send innocent men to prison because the lack of proof, this is a huge problem today. Then we have someone like Foucault who's, a, who's accused of approving of rape even textually. How do we deal with all these misreadings of Foucault when the, the bottom line seems to be he's not agreeing with our way of conceiving of this act? Well, I noticed something in myself as you were talking, Julian, that 
I really want to reply to you. And I got, a, I had a fear inside myself. I just noticed it physically. I had a, a fearful sensation or a tightening of my stomach because I thought if I enter into this conversation, I'm going to be so misunderstood now, mm -hmm. but I'm going to do it because I'm dedicated to um, trying to um, explore um, truths um, and power relations uh, through discourse, through our conversation with each other and my conversation with other people. So here goes. Um, can I just slightly backtrack and go back to the ways in which that feminists are now very anti-Foucault? Mm -hmm. sure. And I, I do understand that. They're told that Foucault is, um, they, 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 Foucault is demonized and they believe that, this, that he's demonized for a reason. And then the reason is justified because he says, uh, um, in their mind, um, the demonization is justified because he does say dreadful things um, in his um, conversations with people about um, child sexual abuse. And he does talk about rape. I'm gonna come back to the rape thing. I'm not trying to avoid it. But I have to tell you that I realized that I should shut up about Foucault. I was once at a conference where um, I tried to explain why Foucault was an influence on me. And I have to tell you, the conference imploded in the same way that when I talk about um, feminism and my critique of transgenderism, there will be trans activists who, um, who, who force a situation in which the conference has to come to an end. They stand on my desk, they push me around, they, whatever they do. And in this conference, Radical Feminist Conference, in which I was trying to explain, just explain why Foucault is important to me, not that the other people there had to make Foucault important to them, um, very much the same dynamics occurred within the conference. People um, accused me of erasing their truths, um, almost erasing them, that what I was saying was so dangerous, um, and so on. And it, I felt like I was, the, the two sides were being mirrored. <laughs> they were almost identical, just from different positions. It was mm -hmm. very, very disturbing, very disturbing. So whichever way I'm caught in a vice grip, I'm accused of, of, of you know, erasing one set of people, um, and then, me, the very same person, is erased of accused of erasing the other set of people who they violently disagree with each other, but their main, the main emotional response they have is that in the, that whatever it is that I say is actually erasing them. So this this can be seen as a, a very serious thing. Actually, it is a sort of metaphor for what we've already discussed going on in our culture, where actually discussing things is now becoming forbidden. It's being risen to such an emotional pitch that the other person, whichever side you're coming from, hears you as doing nothing else but annihilating them. But you know, we could talk for hours about that issue. Let's get back to the rape thing. I think that. I think that Foucault is very much positioned as a man and I don't think that he understood or was thinking about rape 
in relation to the position of women in a sexist society in which there is a prevalence of sexual violence. He wasn't, um, he wasn't dismissing that. He would, but he was asking us to look at rape from a different viewpoint. And I value, dare I say it, the ways in which he was trying to get us to think about it differently. So let me try to phrase this as a feminist who believes absolutely that sexual violence is prevalent. It's in many ways utterly extreme, it's global, and it is a way in which women are socially controlled. So I want that to be my first premise here. Mm -hmm. I also think if we go to the other end of the continuum from extreme sexual violence to the kinds of ways that a woman might feel violated, for example, um, in court, at this moment in uh, the UK at this moment in time there is a slightly high profile uh, legal case going on where a, a one-time kind of you know re relatively insignificant person who media person who was on our children's television actually a children's program um, in the 1980s, uh, a program called Blue Peter, and his name is John Leslie. He's being accused of, in a nightclub, touching a woman's breasts on the top of her jumper in public view. It was on, her, on top of her clothes, and it lasted for a few seconds. And the woman's case is that she has been sexually traumatized by this event for so many years, and it's only now that she's able to bring this to um, legal retribution, as it were, because of the Me Too movement, which has emboldened her to do it. And of all the backlog of cases that are going on because of the COVID um, pandemic in this country, the one case which is being dealt with at the moment is this John Leslie case, which is unjust in itself. Um, and I think it's being, in my view, and I think it's being brought because it, it's, it has a sensational quality to it. It's about sexuality and so on. And then there are people languishing in prison who haven't because the court hasn't been sitting for, you know, uh, who, for very serious offences, which they may not have committed, who are still languishing in prison waiting for a trial. Um, I hope that makes sense. Anyway, John Leslie is now, uh, this trial is going ahead and the media is sensationalizing it. You know, they're calling him a predator and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to point out is that the idea that a woman can be so traumatized by in, an, by in, in the public, having somebody place his hand, which he certainly shouldn't have done, if it is true that he did it, certainly shouldn't have done it. But the idea that this can be so traumatic that her life has been blighted for the past however many years ago, now 12 years or something, um, seems to me something that we, we need to reflect upon. That somehow sexual predation has become, is viewed and framed conceptually as so dreadful for women 
that what we're in danger of doing is is minimizing or, or numbing ourselves actually to the actual sexual predation which happens so that if women can't so i'm really uh, i hope this is making sense julian to mm -hmm. you yes mm -hmm. yes no good um we have to get this into some kind of proportion now if we go back to foucault's theory what he talks about he talks about the way that we've come to understand sexuality and by that he means our biological sex bodies in conjunction with the idea of gender in conjunction with what we will take seriously and what we won't take seriously where medicine gets involved and so on you know if we that has led to the, this idea that somewhere deep inside us there is something so 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 truthful so it's almost like the holy grail it's like our sexuality has become our soul um it, given that we're no longer religious we found a soul somewhere else we found the inner true beingness of ourselves in the truth of an inner sexual identity and what he's trying to do when he problematizes the issue of rape he's not saying that rape is insignificant he's not saying that rape isn't about sexual violence he's attempting to say that if we have this idea that there are so our very inner true selves revolves around the preciousness of a sexual engendered identity we will then see um someone putting their hands on the top of our clothes briefly for a few seconds as a sexual assault of such magnitude because what the, what is happening is our inner self is being threatened so i would like to take foucault's ideas um in relation to the sexual soul and apply it to rape and I do it as a radical feminist who is horrified by the amount of sexual violence there is, horrified by the way that nobody seems to care very much about it, actually, in the way that if we just take the example of Rotherham in the UK, where young working class girls who needed protection were actually being routinely sexually abused and we couldn't talk about it. And one of the reasons we couldn't talk about it was to do with sexism and racism and fears of being called um, Islamophobic because of, of the perpetrators in Rotherham at the time. I'm going to be pilloried for even saying that, even now. What you're saying reminds me of what happened in a Facebook group where Posey Parker was speaking exactly about this. She highlighted the fact that in the UK, what are called grooming gangs of largely South Asian men were sexually assaulting, raping also <laughs> women and girls uh, who were largely not South Asian. This became known over many years to include very harsh words from the then police chief who investigated these crimes. And people have now come out saying that they were fearful of making investigations and speaking out because of their being perceived as racist. That was one of the comments that was echoed over and over again. 
and we're seeing that same kind of self-reflection and super self-consciousness coming out of the gender arguments today where even people, I can't tell you how many emails I get from people, including some well-known who say, I completely agree with what you're saying, keep at it. And I write them back invariably to say, why aren't you adding yeah. your name to this? Why aren't you speaking out? Because yeah. as much as the woke transgender groups of people and there's many supporters who by far outnumber them would like to think that they are on to to paraphrase owen jones the right side of history we've already seen more than ample evidence to show that they're not the many examples that we have historically to what's going on today are so many just within the 20th century from the way that mental illness was treated with many long stays in hospitals because the subject was deemed homosexual. You have the famous case of American actor Francis Farmer, who was put into an insane asylum and raped. And she became a lifelong medical patient because she did not square with their rendering of a functional human. And, you know, going back, this, this all goes back to what we've spoken about earlier and the fact that uh, Foucault, He's not the author of queer theory, He's not the author, he has nothing to do with postmodernism, but he was the author of what he calls biopower. And uh, he talks about biopower as a series of strategies and mechanisms through which basic biological features of the human species have become an object of political strategy. And he takes this back to the 18th century. Now, how on earth has anyone read Foucault, Plucks, Pluckrose, Lindsay, others, without having realized that the entire centrifugal force of his work is based on the body? <laughs> it's not the rejection of the body. And here we are being afraid to say things in many different political theaters, but they're all echoing over each other today right? I mean, we're seeing this with what we've just discussed with Foucault and gender, uh, feminist issues with Foucault, um, misreadings of his work in terms of gender identity or just identity politics. Meanwhile, a lot of these same critics of Foucault, uh, Pluckrose included, are those who actually believe that there is an inner soul. Now, the inner soul is something that Foucault combated throughout his career. There is no soul to match the body. End up, you can't read Discipline and Punish without coming away with his vituperation of this very belief, right? But, and, and his purpose in doing this was not to annihilate the individual. His purpose in doing this, which is what I think Pluckrose might say, his purpose in doing this was to, 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 to think around how we can maximize as much as possible the kinds of freedoms which, which in modernity will benefit us. I think the surveillance that um, we, we've just been talking about, whether it was with the, the, um, the abuse of girls and teen, um, young women in, in Rotherham, um, uh, demonstrates that the, sorry the, the panopticon 
that Foucault talked about, which was really a metaphor for how we are socially controlled through the surveillance we do upon ourselves, is actually exemplified by the issue of Rotherham and by the issue of being afraid to talk about the, um, transgenderism. And, and, and Owen um, is, a, is an example of somebody who, rather than being somebody who's progressive, he was, who is setting himself up as the police officer who will guilt trap us all into being even more surveying of ourselves and, 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 and according to, to the right think, um, pervade by, by him from the left. I'd like Julian to get back to the issue of sexual violence because I think it's really important. What, what I want to say about this is that whilst we're concerned about um, relatively minor things, what actually happens is we tolerate sexual violence um, is because sexual violence in our society is, it coheres around um, class as well as um, class issues, as well as women sexist issues. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm explaining this very well, actually. Um, but so what Foucault was attempting to do was separate out the, the, the actual violence, which takes place in rape, and the violence, which in, sometimes rape is not violent in the sense that there is no physical harm at the end of it. There just literally isn't. But the violence happens somewhere else. The violence is the violation of the body, the violation of the woman's boundaries, the violation of her integrity. And none of this can be understood as outside or none of this can be understood outside of looking at the social structures of our society. So I guess if we wanted to be um, rebellious, as I wonder whether Germaine Greer was attempting to be, one would say, let's not go along with feeling so violated about it. Or okay. if we, it's clear, clearly there's violation there, but to deal with it, to actually be, to reclaim our integrity, to reclaim women's rights not to be sexually assaulted, it might be better to get angry about this in relation to the violation of our autonomy rather than to feel that in some sense we've been deeply violated at this soul level. It's something around that that I'm trying to tease out. Well, it's interesting because when Germaine Greer made these comments, it was in 2018, she wrote, here's a quote, if we're going to say, trust us, believe us, if we do say that our accusation should stand as evidence, then we do have to reduce the terror for rape. It's in moments like this, she says, I can hear feminists screaming at me, you're trivializing rape. And she goes on, you might want to believe that the penis is a lethal weapon and that all women live in fear of that lethal weapon. We don't live in terror of the penis. And she's doing just this. She's trying to take power over yeah. even her own rape when she was 18, which she has you know, described in great detail. Yeah. And, and in a way, she's saying we need to move on from that. We need to, we need to 
stand by our word that this is a wrong and this happened, but we also need to be able to move beyond that moment and yeah. create a new space of growth. And I yeah. think that is where a lot of feminists are missing out. When Douglas Murray speaks about identity politics and he includes feminism in that, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about feminists who don't want to move or refuse to move beyond what Germaine Greer has patently critiqued. Um, we can't identify around only a tragedy. A tragedy can be part of who we are, um, but there are loads of tragedies that men too experience. You know, a lot of people uh, in the West, I'm very shocked, you know, constantly by how little experience people have in the West of what most people in the world actually experience. And you see this, you know, I've lived all over the developing world and what people, you know, would say is child slavery or child violence is a quotidian fact of life. So that when I'm going, you know, through the streets of Mysore and I see a six-year-old beggar who's also helping her mother uh, do the dishes because they live in a tent by the side of the road, that's interpretable as many things. It's also largely a repercussion, it's entirely a repercussion of capitalism. Now, we're feminists, let's say, and I'm not trying to pick on just feminists because there are many leftist feminists who agree with us, but where we can't contain capitalism, we must therefore critique it. And we must see our own subjectivity within that larger framework. So that if we're going to create our subjectivity uniquely around the penis, um, we have a problem there because our identities, uh, whatever we want to call ourselves, uh, will never match up with the ability for just look at what we're living on. Who can afford to leave lockdown or not? Well, all the people saying, oh, but let's continue lockdown. We're finding out that a lot of those folks are the most economically advantaged. And the people that they rely upon to keep lockdown for them, because you know my argument has been for months now, the people enjoying lockdown are living in lovely large homes and are relying on delivery drivers who, even in the UK, Germany, wherever, they're often immigrants who are barely getting by on their salaries. And the exploitation of labor is coming out through what is a new form of biopolitics. You know, we're, we're seeing where Foucault gave birth to the notion of bio, biopolitics. This was taken up by people like Giorgio Agamben, who looked at this quite ferociously after 9-11. And he critiqued the state of exception that he has written uh, several books on, uh, where he, he says that we can't actually concede that our governments shut down our human freedoms and rights while expecting this to be a temporary measure. He says that in the realm of the political itself, that by making an exception of the very people and whose name this exception is created, we are actually allowing the sovereign to have power over life and death, meaning our own lives and death, and that they can designate which life is worth saving, which life is worth killing. And Agamben mm -hmm. was one of the biggest critics of the global war on terror, 
And it's in large part, not just, you know, I was reading Chomsky, I was reading uh, Cokeburn, uh, I was, you know, very much reading Agamben's work on this, on this figure. Because what happened in my country is we had 14,000 Muslim men who were disappeared. I've written about it, and every time I write another aspect of this massive disappearance of Muslim men, I get emails from people saying, I'm American, I didn't even know about this. Well, of course not. The way the media has functioned, even independent media has stayed away from this because there is a fear of being, you know, after 9-11, there was a fear of being called anti-American. That was one of the big slurs used, just like today it's transphobia, then it was anti-American. If you recall in the United States, they were renaming French fries, freedom fries. And we saw that there was this regard for human life that allowed for certain kinds of extermination politics when it came to the many black sites that the US had around the planet, even floating sites where men were kept in secret detention. Uh, men were, I spoke to a man in Queens who was an American, his parents were Pakistani. He was on an airplane when the call came through, thanks to a politician that got him off the plane. Otherwise he would have been sent to a country where he had never spent a second of his life all because he was perceived as being a terrorist because of bad information. So where we have biosecurity that came about post 9-11, we are now seeing re-imbibed today with contagion. And I find it really disturbing on so many levels that after all the reading we have of Foucault, all the knowledge of the dangers of these kinds of containments, that we've learned absolutely nothing and that the language of separation is continuing. I think the thing that I found most disturbing um, is the irrationality of it. And I think the irration irrationality focuses on, uh, the irrationality that I perceive um, in this focuses on one thing. It focuses on, um, the priority is given to the biological body to keep the biological body alive, as it were. So the, the, the rationale is that it's the very old and it's those people who have underlying health conditions that we're all um, attempting to, we're pretending to, to protect such people. Of course, this is absolutely great. I'm all for protecting people's lives. But given that, there is a way in which the whole social, political, ethical focus is on just keeping the bodies of these people alive. And so the rest of all the ways in which we live with our bodies in society are then neglected. So in, in looking after the biological body, we've, we've, we've let go of all all sense that there are other aspects to being physically alive which need to be attended to. So, you know, we, I could give long lists, you could give lists, you know, um, the consequences of this for children, for people who are incarcerated in prison, who can't get there, who, 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 who can never go to trial to find out whether they're innocent, 
to the dangers to the economy and so on. The, the, the manifest ramifications of this and the people who will die because they haven't been able to go to hospital for other issues. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. And it becomes difficult to talk about this because people will accuse one of not caring for the biological lives of people. So for example, do I want to, um, I'm, 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 I'm suggesting that people who are in nursing homes who are very, very old should, should, should be left to the dogs to die of coronavirus. Um, so, of course, that isn't what I'm saying, but I'm saying that the reality of life is that people get old and they die. And sometimes their lives will be uh, slightly shortened by coronavirus. And I, I honestly, um, I, I'm a very kind person, I assure you. I honestly don't think that this is the biggest tragedy of all. I do think we should protect old people, but um, it's as if we're afraid of death itself. It's, it's, it's as if we imagine that we can control life and death, that that has become the sole purpose of existence. Well, I would say that what my thoughts are on this, uh, coming from Foucault and Agamben, is that the, and, and even gender theory, what have you, we are living in an era where all kinds of pronouncements about the social are being mediated. And that's of great concern to me. We are living in, as in a, a perennial condition of emergency that reckon, to me, it, it recalls everything we've gone through from post 9-11 when we were told in New York, there were signs put everywhere. Uh, if you see something, say something. And they would show a picture of a backpack under a seat. So you had to worry that it was a bomb. Yes. And if someone left a, a box in a brown paper wrapping, you had to tell the police. And so yeah. everything was about fear, inducement. We're seeing that. This does have something part and parcel with the whole transgender movement because a lot of these ideas are about having the right idea. But science, we should accept science is science because it was proven and tested through many bad ideas as well. Yeah. I think you um, originally asked me, um, or I have been asked constantly, why, why did I write the book? Um, and I think that one of the motivators of it was, as I said at the beginning of our, of our talk with each other today, is that what is actually happening with the issue of transgenderism signifies so much else that's going on in our society at the moment. So it's not just a thing in and of itself, which is serious, really serious enough, but that it's, 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 it's an example, it's an effect of larger social forces that are, that are going on, of which transgenderism then becomes an example. It seems to me that it's ideas and the policing of ideas that has got us into this is one of the reasons why we've got into this mess that we're in at the moment where we were afraid to have discussion um, in public 
where we surveil ourselves over a whole range of issues which is not freeing us which is very dangerous this is the beginnings of autocracy and um, regimes you know totalitarian regimes I know that sounds extreme but this is what happens you look back for example at Nazi Germany and you see that it didn't begin with people being hauled off to, to the gulag somewhere it actually Nazi idea Nazism took hold through people's fears of speaking out through social ostracism or losing their job or not getting promoted and the same and book burning then it extends to that then it extends to don't let your neighbors know don't even let your family know what you're thinking these i'm not saying that we're creating um, nazism obviously i'm talking about the component parts of the way that human beings behave when they are being controlled by singular ideas and how people police themselves in relation to that and in the end it will become quite explosive one of the explosive things of course is that transgenderism is a men's rights movement absolutely it is and it is it is um, the old i the old patriarchal social structure where women were told what to think what to you know what what they could say what they couldn't say how they perceived their own bodies and the power of their own bodies is now there is an assault on that it's clearly an assault on that and i hope that the book itself demonstrates the various ways in which that assault which sounds extreme as i'm talking about it it sounds extreme but there's actually happening in practice and the amount of money actually that goes into the promotion of this ideology largely from um american men who now think that they're women um so we're at a very serious um pass in relation to this and i think you're quite right into bringing the the fear that we have over the um covid 19 virus yeah, I think I think they are connected. One thing that's striking to me about the trans rights agenda that we're seeing an enormous number of women get on board, um, and something that I didn't think I would see. Even you know, not just because many are younger women, but there's this alliance to support these people now you know someone would say well you're discounting trans male lives and what and whatnot but the yeah. movement the transgender movement was started by males who identified as transgender and women were an afterthought and it was part of a, a larger political strategy which i witnessed firsthand in new york transgender studies took hold of academic departments by attaching itself as an you know, interdisciplinary module, as part of yeah. cultural studies, as part of even literature. A lot of the participants in the mobbing that goes on around the transgender issue are women. So I always wonder why are women participating in what is really a men's rights movement? Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, many are not aware that it's a men's rights movement because they ally themselves with the weakness of the subject, their perceived weakness of the subject, that these poor men are being yeah. marauded, these poor men are being forced to kill themselves, and now it's these poor young men and women, you know? And I yeah. think that this 
desire to be kind has its place, but I don't think the desire to be kind or kindness itself should have any place on the political stage. Mm. I think we need to be careful about mistaking kindness for complicity in something that's much more maniacal. A different way is I think a lot of the people, and to include some of the nice feminists who are making arguments for true trans arguments, I don't think there's anything nice about telling people that they need to surgically modify their bodies. Uh, I know some people will disagree with me on this, but I think there's something very nefarious afoot there. How can we tell someone that we accept them as the trans subject that they are and let me throw money to your surgery or let me um, help you have a means to making you a medical subject for life where you face increased risk of heart disease, liver failure, kidney failure, and cancers. How is that nice? I could just put it another way too. Um, it's, it, it, I can understand. Um, the desire to be kind and so on. I probably took this attitude myself three or four years ago. Um, I had a, a friend who identified, a man who identified as a woman and um, I, I did perceive him as in need of my kindness. Um, so I understand that position, but of course the reality is that supporting a man to believe that he is a woman or that can identify as a woman and take his place in society as a woman is really unkind. It's unkind to women and to children. So the reality is that the kindness to the individual ends up being a deep, deep unkindness it's unkindness even isn't the uh, isn't even the correct terminology for it women and children are oppressed are uh, uh, their rights are being stripped from them as we speak as it were on the basis of the trans ideology and trans activism and so kindness in a sense is a is 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 something that it doesn't even enter my um we need to be unkind if we if we get to the point where we're this is my own view i'm not um su I, uh, suggesting um i'm not talking about any individual person other individual here other than myself my own view is that i need to be ruthless actually in relation to the tra trans ideology and trans activism it, it, we've gone so far along this road now that the only way it can be turned the only way it can be halted, this movement, is by determination and ruthlessness, not cruelty, actually, just ruthlessness to speak out against it in, in, in the way that one would resist any totalitarian movement. I keep one, it's one of my least favorite topics, if I can be frank. Um, I'm asked sometimes to write about it, and I say, no, not now, because we're talking about something that's so obvious. And I feel like my articles end up repeating something I've already written because it's so bloody obvious what's going on here. We're in a medieval quagmire. We are yes. literally yes. only missing the Inquisition here. We're, yeah. It's exactly, again, back to Foucault. It's what he's talking about. There's no 
there's no soul to be foisted from the body. There is no gender. And that's why you know, these people who run around saying cis, they don't get it when I say nobody's cis, but trans people themselves. And that's the paradox. If you're going to yes. claim that your body's mismatched, but you're correcting it, guess what? Trans are simultaneously cis. Yeah. I do not claim to have a gender. I never will have a gender. I've never had a gender. I've had to combat like you and like every other man and woman on this planet, gender stereotypes. And men have to combat them too. Yeah. And I think the danger here is that we're not really attacking what's feeding this. And what's feeding this are these people who have created a very firm lobby. It's not just the men funding it. The media has been paid handsomely to cover this. The Guardian takes a quarter of a million dollars yeah. to cover this. Other newspapers yeah. are taking money. We can't even trace it all. I have done my best to trace it from the American yes. Human Rights Commission, and they have roughly $4 million a year they throw at media to run what Trump would call fake news, what most of us would call fake news, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. These are mm -hmm. infomercials. Uh, the Guardian does it, CNN does it, Forbes does it, and they're all, this content was paid for. And they have to put that little mention uh, somewhere at the beginning or the end of the article. It's paid content. It's how most of these independent media are running today. There's zero science on this. There's zero social science on this. What we do have, thanks to Lisa Littman's wonderful work, is strong correlation between social contagion and medical mismanagement and, yeah. and medical malpractice, as your work and current lawsuits are showing. Now, we are not able to address that because all these people who are clamoring for the rights of these trans-identified people want to feel good about themselves. And this is what no one's discussing. Why are we not discussing the fact that we're living in a culture where people's only means of feeling worthy, respected, and sub true subjects in their own right, as they perceive the true subject to be, is by having this mantle they've taken on as being a trans rights advocate, as saying trans women are women, or Owen Jones reminding us what side of history we're on, we really need to take a much more critical approach to understanding these social subjects who have in a very perverse way regurgitated religion through this narrative. It's yes. no longer the Pope, it's no longer will the church be headed in Constantinople or in Rome, it's mm -hmm. trans women are women or you are out of there. And yeah. It's not just Maya Forstater's job at stake. There are many other people who've lost yes. their jobs and their livelihoods. There are people, yeah. I've had people write me, they have lost their right to visit their child over this issue from yeah. divorce. And a, a spa, an ex-spouse who's used their public position on transgender ideology to yeah. have their visitation rights taken away. So we're yeah. talking about a human rights topic, aside from the scientific hope come of flat earthery that we've been handed on the left, on the right, we are given an entire political platform that's pawning itself off as progressive, it's not, as being righteous, as being uh, future oriented, and that we are the ones who are politically regressive. It's, it's actually frightening on so many levels because our human rights are being eroded at the bottom of it all.
is our right to free consciousness and free speech. And it's being eroded so quickly. Your book has been out and can you speak about the kind of pressure you had or your editors had to stifle your book's publication? Um, if you're talking about the last book, I've had um, a wonderful experience with my editors because um, it's Benefex Press and they, they have been um, encouraged me to write this book. So I've had a different experience with other editors um, and I write about that in the book. So if anybody wants to know about the different experiences in trying to write about transgenderism, please buy the book. It's quite inexpensive. I think what I do write about in the book is this as a men's rights movement. But what I do say also is that women facilitate it. Women on the ground facilitate this movement as the handmaidens of it. So it's not, I, I'm not opposed, when I say it's a men's rights movement, when I talk about this in the book, I'm not opposing men as all bad and women as all good at all. I'm trying to point out that the way that, and I'm going to use the word patriarchy as a social structure, which Foucault, by the way, agreed existed. He didn't, um, he didn't reject the idea that there was a patriarchy. He talked about the way it expresses itself through the way that we turn ourselves into subjects of patriarchy. So my, my uh, analysis of it, although I don't talk about Foucault in the book, um, is that women participate in the patriarchy as much as men. And women's position is that they will facilitate the norms of patriarchy, which is to prioritize men. So there are women who call themselves feminists who argue vociferously and passionately against the feminist um, the feminist argument a feminist argument such as mine that it is outrageous to put men who've been convicted of rape into women's prisons um, because they identify as women that it's totally and absolutely objectionable at every level there are people who call themselves intersectional feminists who will who will only analyze that from the point of view of the poor man who they who who identifies as a woman who would be um physically assaulted if he went into a men's prison so how have we got to the point where people who identify with feminism will see it will 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 look at this from the point of view and the man and the man's feelings and he must be protected from the men who would beat him up or physically assault him if he were put into a man's prison because he now identifies as a woman. It's, it's, you know, it's almost, um, I'm exhausted with talking about it actually. And one of the reasons why I'm exhausted with talking about it, because there's an attempt, I'm constantly trying to explain something which actually beggars belief. It's almost as if the onus then becomes on me to explain why this is outrageous. It's the onus is not on those people, Dio and Jones is the feather uh, intersectional feminists, to explain how they have arrived at their moral position. It's everything's turned upside down. Everything's upside down in our world at the moment. And this is one example of it. You asked me about publishers. The publishers 
of the previous books that I did with Michelle Moore about um, the medicalizing children, um, there was an attempt by the Tavistock to, to prevent the publication of the, the, the last book, uh, the second of those two books. Um, and I think that the fact that, that, that they attempted to do that became known on Twitter, for example, was a, was a way of me gaining um, some security from the illegitimate exercise of top-down authority, as it were. So, you know, one way that Twitter functions is basically what I'm trying to say is a good way that Twitter functions is that it does provide uh, a public space in which we can tell others what is actually going on. And if there are sufficient people who reject it, authority can be challenged. It's just one way, but I think it is a way. So I do see Twitter as being quite um, powerful from the point of view of increasing freedom rather than decreasing freedom. But as I've said this, I'm aware of the way that Twitter accounts are shut down. One can only say one thing, not another. Thankfully, for some reason, I haven't been shut down. Um, so there were all kinds of different elements to it. And I'm, I'm very aware of that. And we're struggling, aren't we, all of us, um, as societies with how to make sense of any of it, especially because I'm talking about something which should be something that I don't have to talk about. I mean, I'm actually trying to convey uh, a madness.